you know, I don't think pushback against climate science has anything to do with science. I think what you have are entire industries that are about to be uprooted because they are no longer relevant in a world where the emissions that they produce are a threat to our lives and our livelihood. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Jeff Schlegelmilch, director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. He's also the author of Rethinking Readiness, a brief guide to 21st century mega disasters. They discuss how we can prepare for and prevent the 21st century disasters that loom on our horizon. One observation coming out of um, the pandemic is that many of our um, government agencies were not prepared. Many of our not-for-profits were not prepared. And obviously many private sector companies were not prepared for the current environment. But as I look at, at, you know, some of the pivots that have occurred and coming up the, the curve, Uh, And we saw this with prior natural disasters. Uh, Certainly one thing that did not seem to break down, and obviously it was because various people did serve, were forced into service at times, willingly served, but the first responders. And whether it was the innovation inside of hospitals with people putting on garbage bags as protective gear, but I could talk about Amazon, I could talk about Walmart, I could talk about FedEx, uh, I could talk about a number of companies that somehow were able to keep their operations going. And that has to be part of the resiliency model. And my, you know, one of the questions that I think a lot of people are asking, who are actually the best organizations to be planning not only for these issues, but also for the support and the resiliency when events occur. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you bring this up because I think that there are some elements of the response to COVID-19. And this is going to sound strange saying um, with cases way out of control throughout the U.S. and many parts of the world. But there are some things that have gone extraordinarily well. And although it may not be showing up in the total case counts, I think it's, to your point, it's really important that we highlight and celebrate that. Uh, You know, from our frontline healthcare workers improvising personal protective equipment, they should have never been in a position to have to do that. But they did it, and they showed up, and they're treating people, and they're getting the job done. And there's something to be said for that. To your point, we're seeing unprecedented collaboration across the pharmaceutical industry with government to share information and across nations to share information, to invest in approaches, to take huge gambles on technologies and vaccines that have not yet been proven to be effective so that they're ready to produce them at scale as soon as possible afterwards. And I think that there's something to be said for that. And as you mentioned, the adaptation of supply lines, our supply chains were extraordinarily vulnerable with global just-in-time supply chains. Um, and again, this is one of those those incentives where capital markets may punish an organization or a company for excess inventory or excess production capacity. 
Um, and so it sort of keeps it at, you know, the razor's edge in terms of producing just what we need. I think the, so while there's greater reworking and relooking at that model that we need to do, the adaptability of those organizations to turn around. I mean, how many, you know, distillers turned around and started making hand sanitizer? How many clothing companies started making masks and, 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 um, you know, non-traditional organizations stepping up and adapting to this? And I think that that, that's why I have reason for optimism with all of this, because with all of the things that aren't going right, there are absolutely things that are going right. And I think that just as much as we need to deconstruct and dissect what's gone wrong, we need to identify how to replicate what is going right and to shine a light on that in order to do that. Um, I think it's also, I'll just add, I think it's also important to separate out what is going really well, um, what's heroic because of the failures, at the systems level. So, um, and this is where I give the example of the personal protective equipment. You know, uh, our frontline healthcare workers and first responders are doing this so that they can do the work and that's worth celebrating. But we really should not be celebrating that they were in a position where they had to do that. That is not a sustainable answer. That explains in part every evening here in New York City at seven o'clock, people open their windows and acknowledge the heroism of the first responders. But as we think about what could have also gone wrong here and could have had, uh, you know, tremendously significant consequences, and to your point about studying what went right, but with a great deal of effort from, I'll call it the private sector, and there's a lot of volunteering and a lot of pivoting in terms of business models, but personal protective equipment, you know, car companies, went into that business. Um, imagine if, you know, food was not showing up at the grocery stores. So you had everyone from the people who showed up there to the people who deliver the food to the truckers and the suppliers to the farmers who continued the sources of supply. The fact that there were still medicines inside, you know, many of the pharmacies and the mail order system seemed to work. And I guess one of the questions I have here as you think about resiliency here, Jeff, is there are lessons to be learned from this crisis, both in terms of what went wrong and what went right. Who is gathering those lessons? Who is, who is saying that these, this actually represents a teachable moment where the bad should not be repeated and the good should actually be, be built upon? That's a really good question. Um, And the short answer is I don't know. There have been calls for a 9-11 style commission on COVID. And should that come to fruition, that'll certainly track a lot of the government issues. There's a lot of groups looking at different pieces of this. And I think a lot of um, companies are looking inward at their response to this. A lot of agencies are looking inward at their response to this. I don't know that there is someone looking holistically at this, uh, at the level that you that you're speaking, but I think it behooves us to do so. Certainly, within academia, we're well positioned to do that. But I would also encourage every company, every organization out there, to take a really hard look at their own experience within this, and more importantly, how much did it cost to have to pivot 
to this versus if some of that resilience was already baked into the organization to begin with and those relationships with the community and with government. Uh, because this is not the last disaster we're going to see. It may not even be the last pandemic we see um, in, our la- in our lifetimes. Uh, so these lessons uh, are not once in a lifetime. They're, they're worth learning now. Yeah. So Jeff, you, you, you actually raised a theme which is, is I think just so fundamental to risk management. You touched upon it earlier about, um, we'll call it the incentive structure does not seem to be aligned to prevent or have the necessary safeguards in place that can mitigate these types of issues. Um, but, you know, clearly we respond to a crisis far better than we do to the known risks. And you may recall the 9-11 Commission, which was a extraordinary, um, they prepared an extraordinary report, I thought, and they talked about uh, it was less a failure of intelligence than it was of imagination and the ability to see certain dots that could connect and what could happen. And as we think about, you know, sort of the pandemic and how do you realign the incentive structures, one obvious question I think that that does come up is how do you do it apolitically? How do you do it in a way where people are not also incentivized to, I'll use the term, to basically cut the legs out of an effort to acquire the lessons even before those lessons have been put together? That's the question, isn't it? You know, there have been several attempts to take a look at resilience and, you know, how do you bring the whole picture together while also taking advantage of the specialization within organizations? Do you make resilience and readiness part of the DNA of every, at a government level, every agency and within an organization of every department and division? Or do you have like a chief resilience officer? This was championed by the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative with the Rockefeller Foundation. And the answer is probably both. There's probably a responsibility Um, at the tactical, at the operational level, as well as at the strategic level. Um, But I think, you know, to answer your question, I hope a little more directly, it's that uh, there, to to work backwards from the end, we're looking right now at the consequences of not investing in that resilience and not investing in that readiness. And then we're adapting on the fly. How much is that costing us versus how much could that have cost us? Um, we're in a position now to articulate the value of resilience better than we ever have been before. Um, And I really wish that it wasn't the result of a pandemic that is costing many people their lives and their livelihoods, but there's a tremendous amount of information available right now to better make that case. And then the other piece that I would say is that who is at the table and who shares the responsibility for this? It's probably a wider group of individuals than you would think. Um, And what are their stakes in this? What are their agendas? What are their pain points? What are they going to win and what are they going to lose in terms of this? And to acknowledge that and bake that into the conversations. You know, the, I'll go back to climate change um, and a point that I made earlier, which is that, you know, I don't think that pushback against climate science has anything to do with science. I really don't. I think the front on uh, on this war is is over the science and the legitimacy of the science. I think what you have are entire industries that are about to be uprooted because they are no longer relevant in a world that where 
the emissions that they produce are a threat to our lives and our livelihood. This is an existential threat to their business and to their livelihoods. Um, and I think that once you address that and once you set that strategy for evolving these into, it's a different conversation than the one we're stuck at now. And so I think we need to reframe the questions and we need to reframe the approach to be more cognizant of those incentives and disincentives, as well as the consequences of not doing it. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today. You allude to the cost of this. Who's doing the tabulation of the cost of COVID-19 and Similarly, who might be aligning this in terms of what we could have had in place and what that would have cost us? So at, at a high level, a lot of the, um, there's a lot of economic analysis in terms of the cost, whether it's the World Bank, uh, you know, um, groups within the U.S. government, various international governments. Um, I think, um, I know Goldman Sachs has been doing a number of projections based on different uh, courses of action and consequences. I think most recently talking about the savings to the economy if everybody starts wearing masks. Uh, so, so there's a lot of powerhouses out there with a lot of analytical economic capabilities that are getting in the game because they uh, or have been in the game because, uh, frankly, they have a huge stake in it. And they know that they're shouldering the consequences of decisions that aren't necessarily exclusively theirs. And I think that that's a good thing. It brings new voices, new capabilities, and new analysis into the way that we look at this, as well as new pressures on on governments and decision-making for doing this from the industries that uh, are, are a large part of, uh, of our communities and our nations. So... That's one part of it. But what I worry about, too, is that, um, you know, in obsessing over the dollar amount, we're also really, really missing the disaggregated data. Who's falling behind more than others? This is where we're really starting to see in any kind of disaster response and disaster recovery. And unfortunately, we're seeing this in COVID-19 as well, too. It disproportionately impacts communities of color. It disproportionately impacts um, people of lower socioeconomic status, and disasters tend to widen these inequalities. These recovery programs that are supposed to level the playing field tend to actually widen inequalities. People who are of higher socioeconomic status, who are white, tend to have an easier job accessing these resources than people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status. So I do think that as we're looking at all of this and bringing in a lot of this analytical sort of heavyweights, looking at it at the high level to also not forget that the inequalities that we're seeing play out and some of the the, the boiling over of, of racial tensions in this country and globally um, are, are, are not unrelated to the inequalities that we're seeing and the impacts of COVID-19 and of disasters generally, and so should be part of that analysis too. There are some costs that can't be measured, whether it's in business or in public policy. How do you measure the costs of children falling behind in a lost school year? How do you measure the costs of losing a loved one within a family? How do you measure the costs that basically come from the psychological and mental health impact. 
you know, you ha you also have the various jobs that have disappeared, jobs that would have been f filled, entrepreneurial startups that, you know, hadn't even sprouted their legs yet. You know, how does that get baked into the calculus? Because if we were going to think about how to prepare to manage against precisely the issues that you've identified in your book, Jeff, how are we going to obtain resiliency? It seems that there are a lot of costs that are not necessarily reducible, uh, I'll use the legal term, uh, to you know, specific economic damages. There's pain, there's suffering, there's psychological harm, there's lost opportunity. Uh, and as you said, you know, th there's, there's further fraying of, of a social fabric that already was pretty, pretty frayed to begin with. Yeah, so, you know, our ability to measure these things is getting better and better, but the, it's only going to get you so far. You know, I, I can say, too, we can't even tell you how many people die from a disaster. We can tell you how many people had on their death certificate a direct result of it. But these indirect deaths, what we're seeing from COVID-19, these death projections are people that are getting infected from the disease and dying of the pathology of the virus. What it's not telling you are the people who are dying of a stroke because they're not going in at the early signs of it because they're afraid to go to the hospital. They're not telling you of the people who are dying because of exacerbation of hypertension because they're uh, under more stress and aren't, aren't managing their chronic conditions or suicide as a result of the, the stress and, and various other actors. And as you get into this more and more, the, um, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, is that the investment in children is very often the most valuable investment we can make and the consequences of children. We, we have right now what will be the COVID generation. Um, students, people at critical places in their development who are experiencing this disease, who are um, keeping up with their education or not keeping up with it, depending on the choices that are made at the home, at the school district level, and elsewhere. And I think we're going to have a hell of a time trying to actually calculate this. Um, and I think it's an important point that you're making, is that there are going to be long-standing repercussions, um, certain parts of the economy that are being accelerated to their end, that we're on a downward trajectory. Others emerging, um, development issues, as you mentioned, with children, mental health issues that are will never quite be calculable. And so any numbers that we have to project this may be helpful to show a trend. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? But I don't think we should ever mistake the numbers in front of us as the whole picture, that for everything we can measure, there are many, many more things that are immeasurable or not being measured. And the impact on broader society may be measured in dollars and cents and um, lives on a, on a bar chart, but that's not an accurate reflection of the experience of everyone within that society. Jeff, first of all, thanks uh, for the time. Thanks for the public service in writing this book, the cross-sectioning of these risks and these issues. It's beginning to be written about now that we are not past the pandemic risk and the hurricane season is coming upon us. Uh, do you have some perspectives you can share with us about the state of our preparedness and perhaps what we can do in, in, in the weeks or months ahead? Absolutely. And we're working with some of our community partners on this right now, right? There are, are lessons from the pandemic 
that can be applied now. But as we get into hurricane season, so the whole notion, I mean, a hurricane shelter is the worst place to be during a, a respiratory virus pandemic, right? Uh, having people close together. So the guidance for shelters has changed meaning that you have uh, more space between people to try to social distance, even if they do have to be in a sheltering situation. But then what that means is you need more shelters. If you need more shelters, you need more people, you need more supplies. We're dealing with supply chains, emergency management agencies that are already under a lot of stress from COVID-19. So what we can do now is, one, support our responders, our emergency managers in doing that planning, helping to identify locations, increase volunteer roles for those who um, are potentially less vulnerable, the donations uh, to, to whether it's to food banks or other community groups to help be there to help meet shortfalls in other public services. Uh, at the same time, the more individual preparedness we can do so that we don't have to evacuate to a shelter uh, takes pressure off of that. If we do have to go to a shelter, having our own personal protective equipment, masks, hand sanitizer, things like that. Uh, but we're in an environment of multiple stressors, and there's no easy answer to any of this. I know across the country, uh, disaster planners are working tirelessly to update their plans to be ready for this. Uh, but we're in an environment of increased risk. Oh, and the final thing I would say is do everything you can wear that mask, social distance. The best thing that we can do to help with these dual disasters is to keep our transmission of COVID-19 as low as possible in the communities. If we keep it low in the communities, it's less likely to spread in the shelters. It puts less pressure on our responders and our disaster systems and less pressure on our hospitals. So in addition to preparedness, one of the best things we can do to prepare is to be good stewards of our health and other people's health. Uh, to to make sure that the pandemic is providing as little stress as, as necessary on these other responses that we'll inevitably have to face. Jeff, Jeff, again, uh, thanks. I do want uh, to make one more closing point because uh, in the forward to your book, which was written by Erwin Redletter, a doctor, a pediatrician, who somewhere somewhere early in his career he got sidetracked. Uh, away from not concern about children, but treating children in an office and became fascinated with um, disaster preparedness and resiliency. And he, uh, I guess he began his efforts uh, back in the 70s, the, the Guatemalan earthquake, when he went down there and began to, began to take note in terms of what worked and what didn't work and, you know, took away lessons. Uh, one thing that I do recall from the book and also Irwin's experience that is also an immeasurable, uh, which is the psychological impact that disasters have on people, which is often lasting. And, you know, we've seen it coming out of 9-11. We're, we're certainly going to be living with it coming out of the pandemic. The financial crisis of 2008, you know, hopefully had a lasting impression on people. But ultimately, um, some of the casualties that are claimed in these moments, uh, casualties around the truth and the casualty about confidence and trust in our institutions. And I know you and Erwin have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, maintaining trust and confidence and the importance of actual facts and truth 
in terms of planning and resiliency. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the work and talk about the book. And, um, you know, I think it's it's worth noting, you know, as you mentioned, kind of that uh, this field is really made up of many, many people who have chosen to alter their career trajectories or have decided that this is what they want to do to help embrace the complexity of the issues that we have in front of us. Um, and the one thing that keeps me very optimistic is just knowing so many brilliant, passionate folks out there who aren't afraid to be wrong, who aren't afraid to say that they don't know, but who also know that they have something to offer to this. And that's what I'd say to everyone out there. There are so many challenges that we face, um, and that's matched probably only by the increase in knowledge and expertise that we have available out there. And the more that we come together in these collaborative ways and... um, you know, pursue greater resilience uh, throughout the whole of society uh, and not as a competitive but a collaborative approach, uh, I think the more of a fighting chance we have uh, against these challenges. This has been a great discussion, Jeff. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of your book, obviously the timeliness of it, and uh, your continued work and look forward to collaborating with you and the Center. Thank you. I'm looking forward to continue to collaborate with you, David, and with uh, all of the RAIN Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today.